The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Where the dawn of the east meets the twilight of the west and the cool of the north touches the calm of the south and the transcendent power of God touches earth in the humility of love. Here and now at Marsh Chapel, where the head of the Charles reaches out to the heart of the country, we gather and are assembled for worship of Almighty God on this Boston University Baccalaureate Service Sunday. Today we are especially blessed by the presence, voice, and leadership of Dr. Robert A. Brown, Boston University's 10th president, Dr. Jean Morrison, chief academic officer and university provost, and especially our honored baccalaureate speaker, Dr. Nancy Hopkins. We welcome you all to this service. The service, liturgy, music, and homily are offered for the gathered community here at Boston University, both in Marsh Chapel and in simulcast in Nickerson Field at this hour. For our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership now and later across the globe at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of leadership in our midst. And as the spirit moves come Sunday, your presence with us, actual or virtual, in worship. Beloved, as those who are growing together in learning, virtue, and piety, growing together in knowing, doing, and being, growing together in mind and heart and soul. As we are able, may we stand together in the praise of God.
Let us pray. Almighty and eternal God, who sustains all things and who makes all things new, bowing down before your divine majesty, we praise and worship you as is truly right and just. Fill our hearts today, we pray, with the joy of youth, with the joy of hope, with the joy of gratitude, with the joy that pours down into our hearts from heavenly realms and makes all things new. For you live and reign forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. A lesson from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. The word of the Lord.
and to pray to his God for a while. The king at once for Daniel had said, and he put him right down in the lion's den. God sent his angels, the lions for to keep, and Daniel lay down, and he went to sleep, went to sleep, went to Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. It is he that made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. A lesson from Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 1, 2, 9, and 13. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent of spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contrib contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. The word of the Lord.
please be seated. Well, beloved, we pause with joy and pride to welcome our baccalaureate speaker for 2014. As we do so, we recognize the congruence in her life and in this place, Marsh Chapel, of the importance of personal commitment and faithful devotion. Here and now, we prize person over place. Take a moment and look around you, those who gracefully and wisely constructed Marsh Chapel, most notably President Marsh himself, did adorn our nave with beautiful stained glass conic windows. Pause for a moment to notice the lower level, the, the first tier. All of these lower windows depict places, places of significance, meaning, and devotion. Jerusalem and Rome and Oxford and London Places indeed and very important. Every city and every urban university is acutely aware of the importance of space. And our chapel honors the importance of space, place, and common ground. As they say in real estate, it is all about location, location, location. Yet yeah, take a moment and look just a little higher. The top bank of windows displays people not places, souls, not spaces. Here at the higher level, it is more about vocation, 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 vocation. One's calling in life, one's passion in life. So you find those you might expect, Augustine and Aquinas and Athanasius and St. Francis here with the birds. You also find some you might not have expected, Francis Willard and James Bashford and Abraham Lincoln, who has spent more time in church in the stained glass of Marsh Chapel than ever he did in his life long, Abraham Lincoln. That is, the charming Gothic nave of Marsh Chapel is meant to lift us to what lasts, matters, counts, and works. It is a place where persons and personality are lifted in honor and devotion. So it is fitting that we bring such a fine person, Dr. Nancy Hopkins, to this particular place and pulpit. Reflect with me for a moment, particularly those listening from afar, to her life and to her vocation. Nancy Hopkins is a molecular biologist and the Amgen Incorporated Professor of Biology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. As a junior at Radcliffe College, Considering possible career paths in architecture or medicine, she attended a lecture by James Watson, co-discoverer of the structure of DNA. This inspired her to become a research scientist. While earning a PhD at Harvard, she worked to isolate the lambda phage repressor, examining the DNA of operator mutants and how various mutations affected a repressor protein's ability to bind to DNA. She became interested in probing the genetics of animal tumor viruses, an interest she pursued as a, a postdoctoral research, researcher at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, working with her mentor, James Watson. In 1973, Dr. Hopkins was invited to join the faculty of MIT at the newly constructed Center for Cancer Research. After arriving at MIT, Dr. Hopkins pursued two major research areas, 
Initially, she changed her research focus from DNA tumor viruses to RNA tumor viruses, which were then considered to be a likely cause for many cancers in humans. And after several years of research and significant contributions in this field, Dr. Hopkins began studying developmental genetics in zebrafish. Her laboratory developed the first successful method for making insertional mutagenesis work in a vertebrate model, which enabled her team to identify genes essential for zebrafish development with implications for better understanding development in other species as well. Her work outside the lab has attracted national interest as well. In the 1990s, she initiated an examination of possible gender bias against women scientists. A summary of the study was published in 1999. In 2000, she was named co-chair of the first Council on Faculty Diversity at MIT, along with then provost Robert A. Brown. She is a member of the National Academy of Sciences, the Institute of Medicine, and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. With me, will you please offer her a warm Marsh Chapel, Boston University welcome. Thank you, Dean Hill, for reviewing my whole life. <laughs> and thank you, Boston University, for the extraordinary privilege and pleasure of being here today. Good morning, everyone. Most of all, congratulations to those we celebrate and honor this morning, the class of 2014. I'm going to describe my participation in a scientific revolution in the field of biology and a social revolution that began the year I graduated from college, but that you, class of 2014, will have to complete. I graduated from college 50 years ago. In 1964, my mother expected me to acquire a husband in college and job skills in case plan A failed. <laughs> Just four years later, society expected young women to graduate and get on the fast track to high-powered careers. When I entered college, women couldn't be hired into most high-powered jobs but the 1964 Civil Rights Act changed that. People assumed women would soon be half the CEOs of the Fortune 500, half the scientists and engineers, 50% of Congress. They expected it to take about 30 years. Change has been dramatic. In some cases, too dramatic. For example, more women than men enter college now. Ah, Nonetheless, after 50 years, women are 4.6% of the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, 19% of the science faculty at MIT, and just 19% of Congress. Why so slow? 50 years ago, people thought all you had to do was open the doors, let women in, and wait. Time would take care of the rest. They were wrong. Behind the obvious barrier of not being able to get a job, were a series of invisible barriers. Each had to be identified and dismantled. I hope my personal story of this 50-year revolution illustrates why social change is slow, but how barriers do get removed. I went to Radcliffe College, the women's division of Harvard in my era, 
And as you heard, junior year, I signed up for an introductory biology class taught by James D. Watson. I walked into Watson's class looking for the meaning of life and found it. <laughs> the secret of life was DNA. <laughs> After class, I raced to Watson's office and asked if I could work in his lab, and he said yes. The science was incredibly exciting. I thought it highly likely I'd make a Nobel Prize winning discovery. Everybody else seemed to. But I had no thought of getting a PhD or being a professor. After a week in Jim's lab, it was obvious to me why there weren't any women professors. These molecular biologists worked 70 hours a week. Their wives stayed home and took care of the family. How could anyone do both full-time jobs? My goal was to win a Nobel Prize before I was 30, quit science, and be a wife and mother. <laughs> Didn't happen. <laughs> Jim Watson decided I should get a PhD. My husband and I divorced, and in 1973, MIT offered me a faculty job. So there I was, age 30, no Nobel Prize, no husband, a PhD, and a job offer. Time for plan B. <laughs> Thank you, Mother. <laughs> I decided not to remarry, not to have children, to accept the MIT job. If anyone had told me in 1973 there was anything discriminatory about this situation, I wouldn't have known what they were talking about. It didn't occur to me that a profession in which half the population cannot participate equally and also have children is not an equal opportunity occupation. Off I went to be a junior faculty member at MIT to work on the genetic basis of cancer. I certainly didn't expect to encounter gender discrimination because science is supposed to be merit-based. The cancer research was thrilling. In a short time, many of the genes that cause human cancers were discovered. But it turned out I was wrong. Gradually, I came to see that gender discrimination did exist after all, even for women who chose not to have children. What I saw was that when a man and a woman made a discovery of equal scientific importance, the man and his discovery were valued more highly than the woman and her discovery. This seemed so implausible that I had to witness many examples before I believed it. There were so few women in science then that it took a long time. But after 20 years, I knew it was true. It dawned on me that this discovery was a profound insight into the human mind. It was revolutionary. In fact, it deserved a Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, as I learned later, my discovery had already been made. It was psychologists who documented the irrationality of our brains and our inability to make accurate judgments of even simple numerical facts if the conclusions contradict our unconscious biases. You can demonstrate gender bias very simply by making copies of a research article, putting a man's name on half the copies, a woman's on the other half, and sending the two versions out for review. Reviewers judge the identical work to be better if they believe it was done by a man. Surprisingly, it doesn't matter if the reviewers are men or women. <laughs> Incidentally, my Nobel Prize was awarded to the psychologist Daniel Kahneman for his work on unconscious biases. <laughs> for a long time, I was afraid to tell anyone my discovery because in a meritocracy, if you complain of unequal treatment, people will say you're whining or, you think, or they'll think you just aren't good enough. 
But in 1994, after measuring all the labs in my building with a tape measure to prove that women really did have less lab space than men, I got up the courage to ask another woman professor whether she had ever observed this strange bias. She had, and so had 14 of the other 15 tenured women scientists we learned. It was in polling them that we discovered that 30 years after the Civil Rights Act, only 8% of the MIT science faculty were women. At Harvard, 5%. I suspect Professor Deborah Bell would tell us Boston University's numbers were similar. <laughs> Together, the women faculty had the courage to ask MIT to help us collect data to analyze the problem further. We learned that the unconscious undervaluation of women's work can cause women of equal accomplishment not to be hired and cause women who are hired to receive fewer resources for their research. Women were marginalized. No wonder there were still so few 20 years ago. More amazing was that the ones who were there were so successful. Our results became public in 1999, as you heard, and we were inundated by email from professional women all over the country and, in fact, around the world who wrote to say they had experienced the exact same problems. How do you fix problems this difficult? In 2001, MIT's president and provost set out to do just that. Our provost then was Bob Brown, now your president. I recall sitting in Bob's office at MIT saying, Bob, how on earth can you fix these problems? Nancy, he replied, we're engineers. Engineers solve problems. Over the next several years, I watched Bob Brown, the engineer, change MIT and hence society. In 2001, women faculty were still afraid to take family leave to have a baby. Five years later, the problem was 90% solved. Bob oversaw the writing of new family leave policies and made them routine, so today the stigma of women taking family leave to have a baby while also being a top-notch scientist has largely disappeared. In 2001, a new computer science building was in the planning stage. Bob had the plans redrawn to include a large, visible daycare center. Today, essentially all junior women faculty at MIT have children. Not as hard a problem to address as we had imagined. Other inequities were also quickly remedied by committees which review data and propose solutions. And what about the unconscious bias itself? Just two years ago, a study from Yale documented that science professors in American universities still favor John over Jennifer, and they pay him a higher salary even though the CVs are identical. However, good news, other research shows that unconscious biases lessen over time not because time passes, but because people work for change. Suddenly, we look around and say, you mean women used to hide the fact they were pregnant? You must be joking. If you ask me to name the greatest discoveries of the past 50 years, alongside things like the internet and the Higgs particle, I would include the discovery of unconscious biases and the extent to which stereotypes about gender, race, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, and age deprive people of equal opportunity in the workplace and equal justice in society. And this is where you come in, class of 2014, so I hope you're listening. 50 years ago, we didn't know enough to create a society in which women and men could participate equally at work and at home. And we didn't have the research that shows why it's so important that they do. Despite enormous progress, this revolution isn't over. There are entire industries, venture capital, Silicon Valley, 
even the biotech startups right here in Boston, whose leaders seem not to have heard of the Civil Rights Act. I realize, 2014ers, that your top priority is to find work you love and figure out how to get someone to pay you to do it. How can you also complete this so social revolution? Answer, because you're 50 years smarter than we were. You know this revolution won't be completed by women alone, but by men and women working together. You'll insist on beliefs that are obvious to you, but that my generation had to learn so slowly and painfully. If you look around and see that the people you work or study with all look like you, you'll know there's something wrong and change it. If you see that one group of people isn't succeeding as rapidly as another, you won't hypothesize that it's because they're genetically inferior, you'll look for the barriers that explain why. If an inflexible workplace makes it impossible for you to be full partners at home while achieving your ambitions at work, like 16 women faculty at MIT, you'll get together and change institutions. Completing this revolution won't happen by the passage of time, but because you make it happen. I look forward to the world you will create. Thank you. Please be seated. We pray this morning in the words of Howard Thurman's litany of thanksgiving. In your presence, O God, we make our sacrament of thanksgiving. We begin with the simple things of our days, fresh air to breathe, cool water to drink, the taste of food, the protection of houses and clothes, the comforts of home. For all these, we make an act of thanksgiving this day. We bring to mind all the warmth of humankind that we have known, our mother's arms, the strength of our fathers, the playmates of our childhood, the wonderful stories brought to us from the lives of many who talked of days gone by when fairies and giants and diverse kinds of magic held sway. The tears we have shed, the tears we have seen.
the excitement of laughter, and the twinkle in the eye with its reminder that life is good. For all these, we make an act of thanksgiving this day. We finger one by one the messages of hope that await us at the crossroads. The smile of approval from those who held in their hands the reins of our security. The tightening of the grip of a single handshake when we feared the step before us in the darkness. The whisper in our heart when the temptation was fiercest and the claims of appetite were not to be denied. The crucial word said, the simple sentence from an open page when our decision hung in the balance. For all these, we make an act of thanksgiving this day. We pass before us the mainsprings of our heritage, the fruits of the labors of countless generations who lived before us, without whom our own lives would have no meaning, the seers who saw visions and dreamed dreams, the prophets who sensed a truth greater than the mind could grasp and whose words could only find fulfillment in the years which they would never see, the workers whose sweat has watered the trees the leaves of which are for the healing of the nations. The pilgrims who set their sails for lands beyond all horizons, whose courage made paths into new worlds and far-off places. The saviors whose blood was shed with the recklessness that only a dream could inspire and God could command. For all these, we make an act of thanksgiving this day. We linger over the meaning of our own life and commitment to which we give the loyalty of our heart and mind, the little purposes in which we have shared with our loves, our desires, our gifts, the restlessness which bottoms all we do with its stark insistence that we have never done our best, we have never reached for the highest. The big hope that never quite deserts us, that we and all our kind will study war no more, that love and tenderness and all the inner graces of almighty affection will cover the life of the children of God as the waters cover the sea. All these, and more than mind can think and heart can feel, we make as our sacrament of thanksgiving to thee, O God, in humbleness of mind and simplicity of heart. Amen.
years at Boston University have changed who we are as people, as students, and as citizens of our world. We thank God for the opportunities we have had to learn, to grow, to seek out our paths in life, and to do God's will in this world. As this exceptional part of our lives draws to a close, help us to bring our BU experiences into the next chapter of our lives, wherever that may be. Let us be those people that ask ourselves what makes us come alive, that we might be bearers of light in our world. Amen.